everybody, and welcome to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell. Ryan Bailey is not doing the introduction, which means I get to yell it. It's a snowy day here in Richmond after it was 66 degrees yesterday. I'm not sharing that information to tell you about the weather because no one cares about the weather, much like traffic and fantasy football stories. But I'm saying it's a strange day here, <laughs> which sort of mirrors the strangeness of the weekend in the footballing world. Joining me to talk about the weekend that was our two gentlemen up first, a man who just spent time in Minnesota and is now back in Arizona. It's Joe Lowry. Joe, how strange of a switch was that to make? Uh, it's really strange. Uh, guys, it is really, really, really cold in Minnesota. And as Taylor said, I don't share that because anyone actually cares, but it is sort of relevant. And Taylor, we had a few people tweet this at us with U.S. Yeah. men's national team games coming up in that part of the country, one in Minnesota specifically, I believe on January 27th. It's going to be freezing, like literally. It's going to be so, so, so cold. When you and I had that conversation before, Taylor, when those locations were announced, we said this could be an advantage, and it, it could be, but I am more skeptical than ever that putting games in St. Paul, Minnesota was ever a good idea. Uh, I think my bones are still thawing out, Taylor Rockwell. Joe, I saw a tweet of a headline, uh, to steal a line from Knives Out, about the Winter Classic and how they had to warm up the rink because it was too cold for the ice, which is <laughs> a terrifying uh, headline to read when we then think about the soccer that might be played there. But Joe, you were Minnesota Joe briefly. You're back to being Arizona Joe. Are you aware that that's a nickname that you've now acquired? I wasn't until right now, but we'll add it to the list, Taylor. We'll add it All to the right. list. All right. I'm glad it's on the list. Uh, joining us, a man who is trying to book a hire car in the U.S. for two weeks in 2022, it's Graham Ruthven. Graham, hello. I have questions. <laughs> hello, Taylor Rotwell. Okay. What are those questions? Is a hire car a rental car or yes, are you getting is, like yes. chauffeured around America? <laughs> it's no, so much fancier. <laughs> no, it's a rental car. I think that might just be a difference between uh, American and, and British. Uh, I, I'm dialect. only calling, I'm only calling mm -hmm. rental cars hire cars from now on. That's so much better. <laughs> yeah. I think that's the way to go. But it then begs the question, Graham, where are you heading? Are you and, uh, Minnezona Joe finally getting together to eat some meat pies? Uh, well, yeah, just not on this trip. Uh, <laughs> so we're hopefully going to uh, Florida on a fam family ah. holiday that has been cancelled twice already uh, in the last two years. So I'm not putting any great stock in this one actually happening. But I suppose I better at, uh, actually try and line some things up and find a car. But thankfully, Twitter had some helpful helpful suggestions, which isn't always the case. Uh, but I, I think I might actually have found something. So thank you, TSS Twitter. Uh, there you go. Well, I was really hopeful that it was going to be a, a Florida chauffeur just driving you around for a couple weeks and we would get some good stories about that. Alas, you just have to rent your own just, car and drive around. Yeah, it's just Ryan and his Mustang. That's what's <laughs> going to drive me around. Such a family-friendly car, in, Ryan Bailey. In, in between his visits to uh, various American-themed <laughs> restaurants. Is, is driving... Wait, what side of the road do you all drive on over there, Graham? Uh, so we drive on the left side of the That's road. That's what I thought. How strange of a transition is that when you come over here? Uh, uh, not that strange. I'm not sure I've got that many interests. Some people do struggle with it. Like my wife doesn't drive in America whenever I'm over there, but I, I, I find it quite easy. You've got big wide roads. Yeah, we do. Mar there's a margin for error there. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a burn. That's a dig on our roads, but I don't care because I like our, our, our well-paved roads when they're well-paved, which is intermittently. Let's stop talking about roads and weather and traffic and all that. Let's talk about uh, the weekend that was, as I said. Let's start in the Premier League. Arsenal 1, Man City 2. 
my thesis on this game is that if Man City were going to lose the title, if we were going to get a, a hotly contested title race, they would have lost this game. Arsenal very aggressive, quit passing through the press. City sort of lackluster, overrun in midfield at times. Even Pep came out afterward and said Arsenal was the better team. And yet, Graham, uh, City get the win. But were you impressed by this Arsenal performance? Absolutely. This is this is one of those games and we have had these sort of matches before this season on the podcast where I have much more to say about the team that lost than the, mm-hmm. the team that won. And I think there were plenty of encouraging signs from this match for Arsenal. I thought had their, their mindset been a little bit stronger and had they avoided that second half implosion, they might well have, have won this match. I haven't seen Manchester City pushed like this in a Premier League match for... Uh, for quite some time and I thought one of the most impressive things particularly in the first half which is obviously when Arsenal were at their best was the the high press you know you had the front four of Lacazette, Saka, Odegaard, Martinelli all pressing high in uh, unison with Thomas Partey and behind to, to, to provide some cohesion and obviously it helped that City seemed to be a bit sluggish and on a sharper day they m- might have been able to pay- play through that Arsenal press a bit better but I thought Arsenal were very effective in in their uh, in their game plan, and and it gave City real problems that I don't think they actually solved until, as I say, Arsenal kind of imploded a little bit in the second half, and then they are they were their their own worst enemies. And I think that is an encouraging thing for for Arteta is that the the one thing that seems to be holding back his players now in that team is is mindset, and that is a very young team, and that might just be something that comes with a little bit of maturity or with uh, sending Granit Xhaka out on loan, whichever <laughs> one of the two comes first. Uh, well said there. So, Joe, we are two for two in our praise for Arsenal. Are you going to make it three for three? Three for three, baby. Three for three. I thought they were good in this game, guys, and I think almost everybody who watched this game thought the same thing. I was impressed by a lot of what Arsenal did in a number of different phases. Graham mentioned defensively that high press. It was strong and it was intricate in a lot of those different movements. I noticed in this game, it was a lot of Martinelli on that left side shadowing João Cancelo, but also also tucking inside, also pressing forward. It was flexible in that regard, but also strict in the roles. And so I was really impressed by that. And then I read a piece by Ahmed Walid on Twitter, who had a great article out about this that fleshed out kind of some of the things I'd been seeing in a lot more detail and he had a bunch of screenshots and a great piece. I can't recommend that piece enough. Go find him on Twitter. I watched and I I was impressed by a lot of the defensive things. I was also impressed by a lot of what we see with Arsenal on the ball. In this game, they go long from goal. They do that a lot more than a lot of the other big teams in the Premier League do. And they had some success with it. Tenth minute, Aaron Ramsdale, long ball forward to Martinelli on that left side. A couple passes later, and you've got that Ederson tackle on Odegaard in the box that went to VAR and ultimately was ruled not a penalty. They have success going long. They were able to consistently threaten for a a middle chunk of the first half, which is, again, to Graham's initial point, not something that, that a lot of teams tend to do against Manchester City. It just doesn't happen a whole lot, and Arsenal did that stuff. They found Martin Odegaard between the lines, which I thought was extremely impressive as this linking, combining number 10 type of player. Thomas Partey and Granit Xhaka were getting involved, especially Partey, who I was really impressed by in this game. So yeah, a lot to like here from Arsenal, and extremely unfortunate that they go down to 10 men in the second half and they just can't hold things together. 
Generally speaking, the only thing I care less about uh, than VAR drama would be uh, AFC Wimbledon, since Ryan isn't here. Uh, but let's let's pause for a moment. You mentioned that penalty shout. Uh, City have one of their own, which is given. And I'm inclined to say Odegaard's should have been a penalty, and the foul on uh, Bruno uh, should also have been... Uh, not Bruno, excuse me. Bernardo Silva. I was going to say Bruno Silva. That's not correct. Bernardo Silva, I feel like that also was a penalty. So I think VAR one for two on the day. Do either of you agree or disagree? I, I, to be honest, Taylor, I, I just struggle to muster yep. sort of any kind of yep. enthusiasm for this chat. Um, I understand that there is, um, some inconsistency there. The, the Odegaard one, I, I initially thought it was a penalty and then I looked at, a different angle and Odegaard there's a there's an angle where yeah, it looks like actually weird. Odegaard stamps on um City goalkeeper Ederson sorry that escaped my, my mind there yeah it, it looks like he stamps on Ederson's ankle a little bit so that angle kind of threw me off slightly and I do wonder maybe if the the officials in the VER have, have seen that and maybe just went ah we'll just stick with the the on-field decision the 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 City one I thought was a penalty it was slight slightly soft but probably just about on the right side but as I say BT who had the, who showed this game over here that the the post-match analysis was completely dominated by chat about those uh, those decisions so i think i've had my yeah. my fill of controversy over those then let's let's talk about uh, individual moments let's talk about happier things than var graham you mentioned thomas Partey earlier so too did joe how critical do you think he was to this performance how important do you think he is to this arsenal team right now so that this was a performance that that showed for me that something has clicked for Thomas Partey in this team, and it was a sort of all action performance. I expected to see more of from him when he signed for Arsenal. I thought when they got him, um, that wasn't this summer; that was the summer before, wasn't it? Wow, time is flying. <laughs> uh, eighteen months ago, when they got him, eighteen months ago, I thought it was a, a real coup. I thought. Um, no disrespect to Arsenal, but they were in a, a bit of a slump at that moment. I thought maybe if he was to leave Atleti, he'd maybe go to a, a team in a better place than Arsenal. So I thought it was a, a really strong addition. And we haven't really seen him at his best, um, but this this was much more like it from him. Looking at some of the, the stats of the stat sheet, he won 9 out of 15 duels. He won 8 ball recoveries, which I think is a, a crucial stat that kind of shows how he was robbing the ball off of, of City a lot in the centre of the pitch. He completed 5 out of 6 take-ons, which is another key stat because he wasn't just a protective barrier in front of the back four. A lot of Arsenal's passing play was was flowing through him, particularly in the movements out to Martinelli on the left side. He won four tackles as well. So I, I, I think he is finally... He had a difficult start to the season. A few weeks ago, we were talking about what's what's going on with Thomas Partey. He's, he's not playing as he should. Um, it's a little bit cruel that after a performance like this, when Arsenal might have finally unlocked him uh, as one of their most important players, he is now off to the Africa Cup of Nations. But I guess such is life and Arsenal should have planned for that uh, because we all knew that was going to happen at this point of the year. That we did. Uh, so they will not have Thomas Partey. They will continue to have Martin Odegaard. Joe, uh, Martin Odegaard is a player that we praised last week on the Weekend Review. Uh, you were not with us. So I want to give you an opportunity now. Uh, VAR aside, because I don't want to make Graham audibly sigh into the microphone. Uh, <laughs> have you been enjoying what you've seen from Martin Odegaard? And I should add, Joe Lowry, I think, is joining us on very limited sleep, having had his <laughs> flights delayed. So, Joe, I appreciate that you are even here with us today. Uh, and anything you have to say about Martin Odegaard would be be appreciated by me and by him i'm assuming sure oh yeah martin's listening, He's listening. of course yeah of course. yeah grandma yeah, i know got that. You, got you. i'm i'm a big fan of martin odegaard's game and i'm still waiting for the consistent type of performance from him that i know he can generate that we've seen from him in the past in, in bits and pieces at madrid and in other places i'm still waiting for that to click 
but he's still an undeniable contributor to games like this. He didn't come out and and thread the ball behind the back line a whole lot, right? He didn't he didn't come out and put on a Kevin De Bruyne or a Trent Alexander-Arnold type of passing performance from the 10 spot, but he still connects play really really well. I think about the goal, which we haven't talked about yet and I'm going to talk about it now because it, it was it was an unreal type of of team goal. It's Saka's goal in the 31st minute for Arsenal. They're only one in this game. Arsenal win the ball back in their half, and it's a quick bit of combination to find Martin Odegaard between the lines. And that's what he does so well. He finds space. He got in behind Bernardo and in behind Rodri in this game for City and punished them in that space. Not in zone 14, not in any particular zone of the uh, zone of the field, but relative to where those two holding midfielders were for City and relative to where their two center backs were in their 4-4-2 defensive shape. That's what you want out of that 10 type of player. He gets on the ball in this sequence in the 31st minute and quickly plays it out wide to Kieran Tierney. Tierney then uh, drives up the field and, and slides it on the floor to Saka near the penalty spot. And this is when I want to share some credit to players who are not Martin Odegaard because there's a lot of people involved in this goal and it wouldn't have happened without all of these individual contributions. The pass, first of all, from Tierney is, is beautiful. The run from Saka to bend and kind of curl back around close to the penalty spot after he was running towards the right side of the box. He curls and bends inside, but he wouldn't have space to receive the ball if Lacazette's movement didn't take multiple city defenders with him. So Lacazette's running directly towards goal, maybe a bit to the right, and then Saka curls around behind. And I'm exaggerating it a little bit. It's a a bit more subtle than this. But all of those pieces are working together. Tierney's ball arrives as Saka's curling around to meet it, and he hits it first time and finds the back of the net. This goal with combinations... uh, with contributions, excuse me, from Odegaard and from Tierney and from players deeper in Arsenal's midfield and from Lacazette moving off the ball and from Saka moving off the ball to receive the ball. That's just such well-coordinated movement. And I see this goal and I think, man, Arsenal could be really, really dangerous on the break. And they are dangerous at times on the break. But when you have that combination from all of those players who I would argue thrive in those transition-type opportunities, that's when Arsenal look really, really dangerous. And, and to reiterate kind of the theme from this game, it's a shame that they didn't have a couple other moments like this that actually resulted with the ball being in the back of the net because this one easily could have gone a different way. And we will talk about a little bit about City, at least. But just sticking with Odegaard uh, one more time... With like how influential he has been to Arsenal's attack, are there concerns that he can like like defenses can sort of focus on him, man mark him, limit his effectiveness, limit his involvement, and thus sort of shut down the potency of Arsenal's attack? Or with the fluidity that you've described, do you feel like if they overly focus on one player, all that does is just open up space for other attackers to have even more opportunities? That's the risk you run, right, Taylor? That's the risk you run. To be honest, I don't think Martin Odegaard is quite good enough to warrant that sort mm-hmm. of defensive treatment. He's a key cog, but I still think he's he's just a cog. He's not moving things around all by himself at this point. So I don't think that would be my defensive approach if I was a City or if I was Arsenal's next opponent. But still, when you do that sort of thing and when you naturally, and I think defenses are inclined to do this, when you naturally give a bit more attention to the tent, to the player who's floating around in space between the lines, if you step too hard, then you do leave space for Saka on the right. You leave space for Martinelli on the left. You leave space for Lacazette, who, let's not forget, can be an extremely dangerous number nine as we're talking about you know, Vlahovic and, and whoever else Arsenal might bring in in this window or in the summer. So it's, it's a danger when you have this much talent on the field. Maybe it's Thomas Partey driving forward from deep. Graham, you mentioned five of six take-ons in this game. He's a threat on the ball. He's a threat to drive forward and, and carve through you on the dribble. So Arsenal are getting to the point right now when, when if they're functioning at this high level that we saw in this game, and we've seen that they can, that if you give too much attention to Odegaard or to any particular player, you could be in trouble in those situations. 
Graham, we've been pretty heavily focused on the attacking side of Odegaard's gameplay. Am I correct in saying that you were pretty pleased by his defensive work as well? Yeah, absolutely. So within the first 10 minutes of the, the match, so I, I'm, I've become a massive uh, Martin Odegaard fan. It's a common theme on this, I was on this podcast. <laughs> it does feel like, um, is he but, in the top 10 list of non-Scottish players that you have yes. like a rooting affinity for? Yes, absolutely. And and a lot of it is because I think there is an arrogance from certain English um, pundits who I won't name anyone who, who maybe isn't, you know, a, 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 a household name coming from Spain or the, the Bundesliga or wherever and coming to one of the big teams in England, they automatically... They, they they roll out certain cliches about them you know they don't they don't run hard enough you know they're they're not the right fit they don't get the club and a lot of those things were rolled out about Odegaard when he signed for Arsenal because I thought a lot of people as we have previously discussed in the podcast thought he was the new Mesut Ozil and so they associated him with a lot of the the bad qualities that Ozil had and so seeing him in the first 10 minutes you know leading the high press and Particularly, particularly early on, he was gesturing to his teammates to get up and join him in that high press. And so that, to me, just illustrates why he's the perfect midfield creator for Arteta. Yes, he is an excellent passer of the ball. Yes, he has a goal through it. But he is more than willing to, to play his part off the ball. And, and in particular, one of the, the, the things that Arsenal did really well in the first half and until the sending off was they denied any access for City into Rodri, who is such a, a key component for City this season. He's really become one of the most important players. Um, and Odegaard was key in blocking that route into it for City into, to Rodri. And, and they, City struggled to, to, to play out from the back with, with their, their deepest midfielder, who tends to be Rodri, um, completely blocked off. And that was one of the things Odegaard did in this off the ball structure for Arsenal. So yes, he's, he's fantastic on the ball, but I think the reason Arteta likes him so much and why he favours someone like him over Ozil, who was obviously shown the door very early on, is for what he does off the ball. Graham, one other Arsenal player I think we have to talk about for a moment is Nuno Tavares. Uh, hasn't put a foot <laughs> wrong in their last five games. Graham, can you talk about the man that is Arsenal's best left back by some distance, nope. Nuno Tavares? Nope. No, I feel like this is a wind-up effort going on here. <laughs> I believe he has not played in their last five games, which is why no. he technically hasn't put a foot wrong. Yeah, I, I was a bit concerned uh, a few <laughs> weeks ago, I will admit, when Nuno Tavares was, was seemed to have replaced Tierney in the, in the Arsenal starting lineup. He had a couple of good games, but I thought Tierney had an excellent game at left back here. He's played really well recently, and I, I just think there's no content. Maybe Nuno Tavares, you know, he is he's a very young player. Maybe he develops more to his game. Maybe he learns from Tierney, but I just think there's no contest between the two, in my opinion. I appreciate that I am slightly biased. Uh, Kieran Tierney is one of my favourite players in the world, um, I think he's probably Scotland's best left back. I've always been a little bit more Team Tierney than Team Robertson, to be honest. But I think this performance showed why he's so so important to Arsenal. One of the best things about Tierney, and we saw this in the goal, is his willingness to drive inside when there is space to do so. Scotland have made uh, really good use of that quality. He plays kind of left-sided centre-back, but he has that, that ability to get forward. I'm pleased to see that Arteta is also making use of that. And you see Yao Cancelo do something similar for City. He often will drive into the centre midfield. And it just gives Arsenal a, a bit of a different dimension. You know, they not only do they have someone who can get around on the overlap, which is something Tierney does a lot, they also have someone, as I say, who can drive into central midfield. And that's where the, the pass for the Arsenal goal comes from. So very pleased to see Mr. Tierney doing well in this one. Uh, as I said, we will talk a little bit about Man City right now uh, because they do end up getting the win. And uh, I think at the start of this 
uh, uh, game review, I was saying that this felt like a game that if there were going to be a title challenge, if they were going to slip, they would have lost this one. But the Arsenal looking as good as they did, kind of going at Man City, making them uncomfortable. And yet in the end, Joe, it is a win for City. They kind of grind it out. You could argue they get they get fortunate. Again, I don't think they do. I think it's a penalty. I think they, they get the win. They get the three points. Um, it's as Graham said, it's hard to talk about Man City sometimes because they are just such a machine at being good. But is there anything that stands out to you about this Man City team? Anything that you're particularly enjoying? I liked Nathan Ake's uh, goal line clearance. I like that extra effort. <laughs> I did not love the referee making an even more darting run than Martinelli to kind of block off the shooting opportunity. I missed that, that on first weird. watch on replay. I have some issues with the uh, the official overall. But Joe, anything stand out to you from Man City's performance? I have one tactical thing, but before that, that sequence, we haven't even really gotten to it in the second half, that sequence where uh, Man City get their goal and it goes to VAR and then Maras puts the penalty in and then you've got Arsenal who nearly come right back and, and score yeah. to get ahead and that's the Laporte header over the top and Ederson has to scramble back and he doesn't get onto the ball, obviously. And then Ake has to make that goal line save and then just moments after that, that's Gabriel getting sent off with a second yellow card for a challenge on Gabriel Jesus and then Arsenal go down to 10. It's this insane 10-minute stretch that completely changes the game and could have changed it two or three times within that sequence itself. That was bonkers and City pretty much dominate after Arsenal go down to 10 and, and they get that second goal to win it in the 93rd minute from Rodri. The, the tactical thing for me in this game that I was most intrigued by with City is something we've seen before. It's not new, but it is new within the context of like global soccer tactics history, that kind of thing. This this game, City come out with a back three and you've got Nathan Ake and you've got Laporta and then you've got Ruben Diaz all in that space. But rarely did they actually look like a back three, or maybe 50% of the time they looked like a back three in possession. The other times it was Cancelo playing a a bit deeper on that right side to be a right back and Ake on the left. And other times still, this is the thing that was most interesting to me. You have Ederson stepping forward functionally to play as a right center back or a left center back in possession. And we've seen that a few times in the past from City and from a few other teams around Europe and around the world. But we don't see it all the time. And anytime I see that kind of thing, anytime I see a, a goalkeeper coming up to be a part of a back four in possession, it catches my eye because we don't see that a lot in the history of soccer. It's a risky move. You have to be kind confident in that player's ability to participate and build up and to participate in possession. And with some of the passes that Adairson puts out on a regular basis, it's it's really no surprise that he fills that role sometimes for City. Norwich fans, you can go ahead and earmuff it for a moment. Joe, uh, if Adairson played for Norwich, would he be a goalkeeper or would he be a midfielder? <laughs> he would still be a goalkeeper, okay. Taylor, but uh, the gulf is a little bit smaller. The gulf in class <laughs> is a little bit smaller in that situation. Uh, and Joe, thank you for for like uh, kind of explaining the chaos that was those 10 minutes because... I think that is part of where my introduction focused on the kind of weirdness of this one, because it felt like Arsenal very strong, playing well, then there's the penalty, then there's the red card. Gabriel very angry about the second yellow. I think that was maybe protesting a little bit too much, because if you watch the replay, he knows as soon as he makes that foul, I'm getting a second yellow. And I think then the anger comes from realizing what that might mean. I watched the City goal, thinking maybe I'll be able to figure something out. Maybe there'll, there'll be an interesting nugget here. And in the end, it's just sort of number in the box, uh, tired legs at the end, and City able to get the win. Uh, not the most impressive performance in terms of like goals and assists from João Cancelo, uh, Graham, but I think understandable sort of given what happened this past week. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I think Cancelo has been one of the, the players of the season in the Premier League this year. I, I don't think he had the best of matches here, which there were probably a, a couple factors in that. So that 
the one that you referenced there is a, a, an off the field factor. So um, he was assaulted in his in his home on New Year's Day. I believe his family was was in his house with him as well. So he actually played this match with a a cut above his above his eye. Um, so I can imagine that was the sort of thing that would would shake your uh, mentality ahead ahead of a big match. So that might have been a factor, and also the fact he he's playing it. Uh, at right back, I guess on paper, but it's, it's a, even considering that that isn't his best position. I always think he's better at left back. It, it was a slightly, as Joe said, he was he was playing a lot deeper than he would normally do, and so he, he was being asked to do things he he wouldn't normally be asked to do. And, and I just think, yeah, as I say, this is this was proof that Cancelo for me is a better option for City at left back. But with Walker and Zinchenko out, Guardiola didn't really have much choice to play him there. And Nathan Ake is playing at, at left back, and I'll use a. a a football manager analogy where I always get nervous when I have to play a a, a player who has who has a DLC or a or a or a DRC at a, in a fullback position, and I think that's exactly what happened with City with Aki. He can play there, but it's not his best position, and it's not Cancelo's best position to play in that way on the right side either. So we'll give him a pass, given that he has had an excellent season so far, and as we say, all the kind of off the field factors as well. All right, so that's Man City 2, Arsenal 1. We will be back in just a moment to talk some more Premier League. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Welcome back. Let's talk Chelsea 2, Liverpool 2, a game that felt like it might be a blowout, then felt like it might be an incredibly high-scoring game and ended up goalless in the second half. But we should probably start with one of the major talking points, the absence of Romelu Lukaku. Thomas Tuchel chooses not only not to start him, but not to include him in the squad. Some reporting I have seen suggests that Tuchel met with five to six senior players uh, who kind of all agreed that it was the, the, the correct decision. I think Tuchel trying to keep keep squad harmony to the level he can. Uh, but rumored to be Jorginho, Conte, Rudiger, and Espilicueta involved in that choice. Graham, can you talk a bit about what the sort of situation is and where it sort of leaves Tuchel, how it forces his hand a bit? Yeah, so for anyone that, that doesn't know, uh, Lukaku last week, an interview surfaced where he basically... Now, this is where there's slight, a little bit of confusion. Mm-hmm. There is there is a debate over what the true translation of what he said in this interview was. But basically, the gist of it is that he is concerned, shall we say, with how things have gone at Chelsea this season. He has concerns about the system that Tuchel is using, the way that he is being used, and um, he expressed his his love and his uh, mm. his desire for Inter Milan, who obviously he played for previously, which then raises prospects of, oh, well, does he want to leave Chelsea? Does he want to go to back to Inter Milan? And the context of all this is that he has been in and out of the team. Obviously, he has been injured as well for a spell, which is a definite factor, but he, he has also been in and out of the team recently. Recently, um, Tuchel hasn't really unlocked the best of Lukaku after a very positive start. I remember saying in his first two games that Tuchel definitely knew how to how to work uh, Lukaku and how to get the best out of him. I'm not sure what happened, but there seems to be a regression over the course of the season. And so this led to Tuchel leaving Lukaku not just out of his team for this one, but out of the squad entirely. And obviously that has led to even more debate about whether that was the right thing to do. I personally can understand why Tuchel took the stance that he did. It was a big distraction ahead of this match. And and 
I do think while Lukaku is entirely within his rights to be honest and I don't really have much issue. Maybe if I was a Chelsea fan, I'd be different given that he's just signed for the club. But my my objection to what he did isn't necessarily that he said he was he was he had concerns about the system and that, even that he was unhappy at Chelsea. Let's just take it at crude value. You know, if, if that's what he said, I wouldn't have an issue with that. Really, it was more the the fact that Chelsea didn't know about this interview, the fact yep. that it was an, an, an unauthorized interview, and so I think that is the the part that I sympathise with for Tuchel and why he'd be upset and why some of those Chelsea players would be upset however I also do think Tuchel now has a responsibility to defuse this situation quickly or it could become the sort of thing that could sink a manager or become something a factor in a a larger um, sort of demise for Tuchel particularly at a club like Chelsea where they might side say these bad results continue for Chelsea they might side with a ninety-eight million pound asset over a manager. I mean, Chelsea have a track record for doing that sort of thing. So I think one match out is suitable punishment enough. Tuchel now needs to sort this before it becomes something bigger. It's really strange to me that it could be it could be a nothing story in the end, or it could be the end of Tuchel's time at Chelsea, or potentially Lukaku's. Uh, that seems less likely, but. Like the initial quote, the way it's tweeted by Fabrizio Romano, who is the one who's interviewing Lukaku, makes it seem as though he says, I am unhappy at Chelsea. I don't like what the manager is doing. I miss Inter and goes into how much he loves playing for Inter. And it's worth noting the interview was with, I, I can't remember which Italian outlet it was. It was Fabrizio Romano doing the interview, but the point of it was to talk about Lukaku's departure from Inter, how suddenly it, how sudden it was and how going back to it for a moment, He had said, I'm not leaving. I want to be here for a long time. He had told teammates he wasn't leaving, and then suddenly he's gone. I think it left a bad taste in a lot of the mouths of Inter supporters, and so this was meant to be a clear-the-air interview. It begins with him being asked, like, do you swear to tell the whole truth? And then he's immediately asked, like, how are things right now? And that's when he goes into, like, "Ah, I'm not that happy. And so I can see it being just a sort of honest interview and some of the quotes get taken out of context or combined. But when you read the entire interview, he makes other comments about how he had expected to join one of the three best teams in Europe. But when neither none of them were interested, then it was only Chelsea for him. And like that's meant to be a compliment, but it also sounds like a dig. And there's just so many of those little moments, Graham, as you said, it being an, an unauthorized interview that Chelsea did not know about, that seems to be another major point for them, that nobody was consulted, nobody was told, so it kind of blindsided the club when it became public. That does feel like it could just be a, hey man, it's got to be better, Like, let us know what's going on, but I hope you feel more involved in the team, and maybe they talk out some of the tactics and it's squashed, or it just kind of grows from here and gets worse. But it's strange that it could be nothing or it could be very much something. And I guess we'll just have to wait and see how the talks go today and this week. I just love the the quote from Tuchel after this is all sort of played yeah. out. He's asked how Chelsea can get the best out of Lukaku. And this is the direct quote. Training, training, playing, training, playing, training, sleeping, eating good, training, playing, sleeping, eat good, drink a lot of water. That's a good one. Sleep, train, and don't give interviews. That's my favorite quote. Maybe, I know it's only January 3rd as a recording, but certainly my favorite quote of the year so far. And uh, it, it might be a bit tough to be eat good, drink a lot of water, and don't give interviews. Graham, I think at least part of that quote was self-interested, because when it comes to drinking a lot of water, you were kind enough to share the photo of Thomas Tuchel sweating through his <laughs> his down jacket, which is no small feat. I'm assuming he needed some hydration after this game. Yeah, so that that was actually Ryan who added the the, oh. the caption. I am a sweaty man, but I don't even I don't think even I could do this. 
<laughs> oh, was it Ryan but, who shared that, or did you did you yeah. give it to us initially? No, it was it was Ryan oh, who, right, who, my who brought it up. But uh, <laughs> yeah, that that definitely takes some doing. And I, I, I side with Ryan, even on one of his half marathons, I doubt that Mister Bailey could uh, sweat through a puffer jacket. Oh man, that is that is quite the look. That is quite the look. Uh, Joe, uh, I was I was I guess impressed by Thomas Tuchel's ability to sweat. Maybe not impressed as much as I was horrified. Were you horrified and then impressed by Christian Pulisic in this game? Yeah, it was a bit of an up and down performance from Christian Pulisic, the LeBron James of soccer. There's so many jokes being made <laughs> here, guys. They're, they're just all over Twitter, all over our WhatsApp group chat. It's a beautiful thing. I've never been more grateful for uh, History Channel airing Pawn Stars. Anyway, uh, it, it was not a good start to this game from Christian Pulisic. Hugely wasteful in the first 10 minutes. So the first thing that I, we got to talk about is... The, the opportunity he has to round the keeper after Kai Havertz sort of redirects the ball towards him after, after a bit of pressure. He has a chance to round the keeper and, and doesn't, and it's made to look a bit worse because Sadio Mane scores doing something yeah. very, very similar a few minutes later. I'm, I'm not inclined to really harp too much in a situation like that. Christian Pulisic is a world-class attacker, and he's not always been in the best of form this season, but those kinds of things happen to even the best players in the world. So that happens, but it certainly goes towards the wasteful tally. He has two failed dribbles, which I am inclined to harp on a bit more, because Taylor, if we've seen anything yeah. with him in World Cup qualifying for the U.S. when he's been fit, which hasn't been too often, it's that he often holds on to the ball a little bit too long. He's so clearly, for the U.S., the quickest and most agile player on the ball in terms of dribbling. But at times, the ball is just not coming off of his foot fast enough. So he has those moments, the failed dribbles, the missed attempt to round the keeper and get a shot on goal, and then gets a yellow card uh, for a challenge on Diogo Jota in the 17th minute. It's not a good start from him at all in this game. And then things start to turn around, maybe even a bit before the yellow card. But after the first 10, 15, 20 minutes... It's a different performance from him. He starts to release the ball quicker, which is huge. He scores the goal. It's the second goal for Chelsea to get them really in this game right before halftime. And it's a nice finish from him uh, after making a run in behind and Conte plays him the ball over the top. It's a good goal. And, and then he has these moments where he's really good with his movement in the box. It's especially visible 62nd minute where he cuts across a defender and gets a shot on goal. It's saved. But those moments are exactly the types of movements you want in the box from your weak side winger, from your, your front line from anyone really in those spaces and then he's creative he showed some of that that flair and some of the things that he loves to do but actually using them in a functional way he has a really nice back heel in the 63rd minute just it turned into a really strong performance from him in the front line he finishes off the game at right wing back which I don't think is anyone's favorite thing besides Thomas Tuchel's but hmm. gets the job done there I suppose so it really did turn around for Christian Pulisic in this game after a very much not LeBron James-esque performance <laughs> was was I the only one who found the pool finish really kind of peculiar it was it was if i was when watching that i'm going don't shoot like that you're gonna lob it over <laughs> the bar it was almost like an underarm tennis serve but he manages <laughs> to keep it flat yeah and, and with power i'm not quite sure i mean it was a great finish but it technically it was peculiar i have to say but it, yeah it was it was uh you're right joe he started so badly and i thought oh my goodness he's gonna get he's gonna get hooked by Tuchel within 25 minutes he's gonna get substituted off here but it did turn around from thankfully and actually until he moved back to right wing back i thought along with kovacic he was probably chelsea's best performer yeah i i completely agree graham you think about how he started in this game I didn't think there was a chance that he would outshine Mason Mount or Kai Havertz in this game in terms of those front runners, but he did. I think he turned into one of their best players and really the last 80 minutes of Christian Pulisic, maybe 60 if we cut out the right wing back time, 
That's the Christian Pulisic that the U.S. needs in January and February and in March. I mean, that's the kind of player that Greg Berhalter wants and is a guaranteed starter for this team. Otherwise, if we're getting Christian Pulisic for the first 10, 15, 20 minutes or Christian Pulisic that we've seen at times in World Cup qualifying already, it's a much harder choice for Greg Berhalter in that left wing spot. Before I I, I let uh, Christian Pulisic off the hook a little bit, Graham, how am I supposed to pronounce Liverpool's backup goalkeeper's last name? Is it Kelleher or is it just Keller? <laughs> oh. So Kelleher is correct, but don't I have no idea okay. on the first name. All right. Oh no, we'll, <laughs> we'll just stick with Kelleher. The first name's <laughs> even more difficult. And if he, it's one of those ones where if he gets any better and continues to play, I'm going to have no choice but to learn how to say his name. <laughs> I mean, that that can be your homework for next weekend review, Graham. Okay. You've got a week to figure it out. But in the meantime, I'll say this: uh, Christian Pulisic did not have a ton of time to react to that ball. Joe, I didn't watch this game live. I saw Graham uh, messaging the group about like, oof. That was not great. <laughs> so watching it uh, like with that in mind, I do wonder if that maybe influenced a little bit. But I, I, I've watched it probably 10 times trying to figure out if there was anything he could have done differently. And I'm not sure there is because when he gets that ball, Kelleher is already off his line, I think, because he wasn't expecting that ball to go there. But I think he was expecting uh, Liverpool to be in possession a little bit more and is then trying to step out, I think, because he's expecting the ball to be cleared. And so I think Pulisic has a like less of a gap to have the time to figure out what he wants to do. And I also looked at that Sajo Mane goal, and I think Mane does have that extra few yards to sort of size up uh, the goalkeeper, uh, Mendy, and then decide what he's going to do. And he waits for Mendy to commit, and then he cuts around him. I don't think Pulisic had that luxury. So I, I am inclined to let him off the hook a little bit for that one, even if uh, the Chelsea supporters maybe aren't. And they certainly weren't for some of those... Uh, misplaced passes and being dispossessed in midfield. But Graham, I agree Pulisic had a strong game. I really agree with you that Kovacic was a standout performer. And I think is at least part of the reason why Chelsea have struggled lately. Uh, from a Guardian piece I read, Chelsea have conceded only four goals in Kovacic's 10 league starts this season. Three of those have come in the past two games when Tuchel acknowledged uh, Kovacic was rushed back. I thought he was instrumental in Chelsea looking solid uh, once they started to look solid. What did you make of Mateo Kovacic, Graham? Yeah, absolutely. I, th- I thought he was the, the best Chelsea player on, on the pitch and not just for that Michael Essien-esque volley yeah. to get Chelsea back in the game, which talking about technique was somehow amazing technique and strange technique. It was the same. Both finish, both Chelsea finishes, I thought the technique were, was both brilliant and strange. I mean, it, I think it's because he hits it so square on. He hits it so, so it's almost like his foot, comes straight out from his body, which you don't often see. And when you do see that, it tends to be someone at five-a-side soccer um, thumping the ball over the fence into the river. Uh, and so for him to <laughs> stick that into the top corner off the inside of the post was was quite incredible. But looking at his stats, I'm going to run out some uh, numbers from the stat sheet again. So 100% tackle success rate, 100% take-ons completed, 100% aerial duels won, 13 duels won in total, which was the most of any player on the pitch, 11 ball recoveries, 11 final third entries, 11, uh, 6 tackles made, which was the most of anyone on the pitch, and uh, 4 take-ons completed, which again was the most of anyone on the pitch. And I think that says a lot about the performance he put in in the centre of the pitch. And I thought where Chelsea had the advantage in this game was in the centre of the pitch because I thought Liverpool had a, a, a lot of trouble in, in that area. So if you look at the statistics for Liverpool in midfield, so 
the the caveat is they had a number of injuries at the moment and COVID cases, which meant they they played Jordan Henderson and uh, Milner in front of Fabinho. He started this game, yep. didn't he? Um, so M- Milner completed sixty five percent of twenty passes, which is quite in- incredible. And Liverpool just didn't have the ability to control the match. Um, on average, their completed um, pass success rate is 84.3% in the Premier League this season. That rate dropped to 75% for this match, which just kind of illustrates how they were, they found it very difficult to, to hold on to the ball. And Chelsea also had those those troubles as well. You know, that there were a number of turnovers, particularly in the first half. I think I read that um, there were 65 exchanges of possession in the first half, which is the most of any Premier League first half this season, which again is just a, another illustrative um, number that shows the sort of match we had. It was a very open end-to-end encounter. And while Kovacic played well, while Pulisic played well, while Liverpool players like Salah played well and Mane ended his goal drought, I think we saw enough flaws in both teams to suggest that neither of them are going to catch Manchester City this season. And this was the weekend, we all knew it was trending in this direction, but this was the weekend where we had confirmation in my eyes that City are the de facto champions in waiting. Yeah, Rebecca Lowe uh, in the post match for NBC Sports uh, was was savage but accurate. Like we, the game ends, we go right back to the studio, and she says basically, "So a draw, pretty much the worst result that either of these two teams could have hoped for," and that is pretty accurate because it does give uh, City all that much uh, more of a gap. But I think still it is a sort of fair reflection of the way this game went, especially given that it seemed like Liverpool going to run out to easy victors, Chelsea find a way back in, and then I think. Uh, Graham, to your point, a lot of the kind of openness led to a lot of the mistakes, which led to a lot of the opportunities, which led to even more openness. And I think in the second half, everything got clamped down a little bit more. I think it was much more conservative. And I think that's why we don't get the sort of highlight real game that maybe we thought we might be poised for. Instead, we get a happy Man City and a somewhat happy Liverpool. I would say slightly less happy Chelsea because of the Lukaku factor. Uh, but we'll see how that plays out. Gentlemen, anything else from this game before we uh, keep it moving? I just want to add to to support Graham's idea about this result really being poor for Liverpool and Chelsea. According to 538, um, which is a website that does a lot of good stats stuff, City have an 85% chance to win the Premier League. Liverpool have a 13% chance. Chelsea have a 2% chance. And every other team is significantly less than 1%. This one is is pretty much done, as are a number of the other title races in Europe. Yeah, right. Uh, this, this season still has plenty of exciting moments left in it. I just think maybe most of those moments will be in the Champions League rather than in domestic if- play. If only we could devise a, a single division for all of Europe that got all those teams that are <laughs> almost certain to win their title in their respective countries, and we got them together, and we put them in the one league, uh, and we could call it, I don't know, the Mega League? Yeah, Graham, that sounds uh, like a super idea. That is just yeah. super, super good. Super into that. I see what we're doing here. <laughs> I see what's happening. Uh, well, until we get that, which we probably inevitably will, let's talk about the individual leagues. Let's talk about La Liga for a second. Graham, uh, again, continuing the weirdness of the weekend, we get Real Madrid losing Hatafe with a 1-0 w- uh, win. Uh, I don't know what Militao was doing in this one. Uh, he yeah. is dispossessed and then chooses to protest losing the ball as opposed to playing actual defense. Uh, but a good goal for Hatafe, an even better win. But maybe not the most surprising of losses for Real Madrid. 
Yeah, that absolutely. I think um, this sort of result and performance had been coming for Real Madrid. So there is a, a, a train of thought that this is Real Madrid reverting to the mean a little bit. As I say, the, 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 the numbers of their recent performances suggested something like this was coming. Before this match, they had overperformed their expected goals by 0.4 per game. Before the, the goalless draw at home to Cadiz before Christmas, that was even higher. It was at 0.6, but it's still the highest of any other team in La Liga. And it's the joint fifth highest overperformance of any side in the top five European leagues this season. And it isn't too difficult to explain why that might be the case, because Karim Benzema and Vinicius Jr. in particular have been in such incredible form where... They've been popping in shots from outside the box for fun. Obviously, for th- for this match, Vinicius is out with COVID. I would suggest maybe, you know, let's keep in mind the winter <laughs> break in Spain is only two weeks long. I would suggest maybe going to uh, Carolina to watch an NFL game and then spending the rest of your break in Miami and all that traveling involved at a crucial point of the season maybe wasn't the best idea, but that but that's just me. And you could see in this match that they missed him um, greatly. Hazard was given a chance in the, in the second half, but at this point, you've, you've probably got to think it's all over for him at Real Madrid. The only thing he's really got going for him is his, his relationship with Benzema. He just doesn't have any meaningful attacking output anymore, which is quite remarkable for a player who, who that was... That came so easily to him at, at Chelsea, but he is he is a, a very different player. I think physically is a big part of it. He, does, he can't accelerate away from players like he used to. So, uh, yeah, I think this performance, this result, I wouldn't be surprised if there are more results like this in the pipeline for Real Madrid in the second half of the season because the underlying numbers suggest that that will be the case. Is there anything in particular aside from like the the loss of pace that you see when it comes to Aiden Hazard? Because that does feel like one of the most precipitous drop-offs in performance and ability that I can remember. And I'm still unclear as to what has happened aside from he moved there, there were the fitness injury fitness issues, there were injury concerns, but it really, really has not gone well for him. No, it hasn't. And and uh, there's a there's a physical aspect to it. As I say, he's lost quite a bit of pace, but there's also that great intangible that we talk about with soccer players, confidence. He's completely shot of confidence and you see a number of times he gets himself into a position where he previously would have, you know, flashed across uh, in front of goal or he would have taken the shot on himself and he just, there's just that moments of he- hesitation where he cuts back, he kind of looks for a teammate and then realises he's going to need to do something himself and by that time the defender blocks his shot or his cross and that that has kind of become the hallmark of Hazard as a Real Madrid player when he has been fit and he has been fit this season. That's why I think this season it feels like there's more of a crossroads to his Real Madrid career than ever before because in the last two seasons you've said, well, you know, you just need to wait until he gets fit. He has shown signs of a relationship with Benzema but all of a sudden now Real Madrid have players in his position and it's not just Vinicius Junior either. It's, it's players like Marco Asensio, Lucas Vazquez. They're better options in Hazard's position for Real Madrid right now. And I think if there is an option for Real Madrid to get rid of him in January or at the end of the season, they, they won't hesitate. It kind of feels like his career there is already over. And Graham, I do appreciate you calling out uh, Vinny Jr. Uh, because I think you're right. A lengthy trip to Florida in the middle of a pandemic is probably not a great idea. Where were you going again on vacation, Graham? Just a quick question. <laughs> oh, that's a tough one. <laughs> I don't have to play Hitafe, though, a few days after I get back. Well, at least I hope not. Hey, you never know. If if the injury concerns keep mounting, uh, maybe you will. Uh, like, for example, Barcelona missing 14 players due to COVID injuries and suspensions. Graham, were you more impressed with that, like those players being absent with Barcelona's win over Mallorca or with Hatafe under their new manager getting that win against Real Madrid? 
I mean, I think you always have to be more impressed by the underdog yeah. getting the, the victory that over the, the super club. Uh, and this was a lot more like it from Hatafi under uh, Kiki Sanchez Flores. Much more like the, the borderless era, which we have seen from Hatafi. Flores came, was appointed in uh, October after a really bad uh, start to the season by Hatafi. But this was the first match we've really seen Hatafi flourish a little bit under him. The Coliseum, which is Hatafi's home stadium, it's not known for being the best atmosphere in La Liga. It's a bit of an out of town stadium stadium in an industrial park but they do respond the crowd there do respond to hard running and an underdog spirit and Hatafi played with plenty of that here they were really well organized difficult to play through and had a threat on the counter-attack and against a Real Madrid team that didn't really have much cutting edge that was enough for them however having said this and I'll, I'll promise to stop talking at some point um <laughs> Barcelona I also thought were really impressive yeah. a 1-0 win over Mallorca is on the face of things that isn't you know Barcelona should be able to achieve that fairly easily but as you say um, 14 players out missing with either injury or, or COVID cases and that team was kids and yeah. Luke de Jong basically um, and I thought <laughs> a number of the experienced players actually stepped up so Luke de Jong gets the winner in this match Barcelona have finally found a purpose for Luke de Jong, which is shielding the ball at the corner flag to run down the clock. Uh, so that is his purpose at Barcelona. But being serious, <laughs> Piquet had a much needed good game. Ter Stegen made a huge save towards the end in, in stoppage time. And uh, yeah, Luke de Jong gets the goal. So this season, a big problem for Barcelona has been the experienced players in that team of kids. They've actually been outshone by the kids. And this, on this occasion, the, the experienced ones kind of stood up and they fought. You know, Barcelona are not necessarily playing better under Xavi, but they are definitely fighting harder. And I think we saw that in this game. Yeah, and, and, I, and I think I was, I was surprised to hear Xavi be as excited as he was about this result to talk about how the three points was, you know, as good as gold and how it was a historic win for Barcelona. And then I think he even owned that, like, that might sound like a bit of an exaggeration. But yeah, when you look at the starting 11, unless you are a Barcelona fan, and maybe even then, like, I, I feel like short of like, like, uh, Frankie de Jong, the one de Jong that you probably knew, there's Gerard Pique, there's Ter Stegen, Mengeza maybe, but then it really is a lot of young players. There's a 17 year old in there. There's, like basically a ton of inexperience and for Xavi to kind of motivate that team to get the results. I, I did find myself wondering if this is like the thesis statement for why you get rid of Kuman and bring in Xavi, because this win under Kuman is sort of like, ah, I guess it's good. I'm not quite sure if this is what his like, kind of long-term vision is, or if it's just an emergency thing. Whereas when it's Xavi and there's this emphasis on bringing through the Academy players, just as he did, or just as he was, it looks more like a like, oh, this is a statement game of the, the, the youngsters can get it done and maybe they'll continue to grow from here. So I think it is a big win, even if it's only a one no win, but it features Luke de Jong scoring and hitting a bicycle. So hitting the bar with a bicycle, not scoring. That would have been maybe like the headline moment of the weekend <laughs> and making it even weirder. Final thing to mention from La Liga, uh, Atleti 2, Rayo nil. A good win for Atleti. They break their losing streak. I think their longest one in a very long time under Diego mm -hmm. Simeone. Maybe for purposes of uh, a Premier League-centric show, like ours sometimes is, the big story would be that it seems, Graham, as though Kieran Trippier is on his way out. Yeah, absolutely. Kieran Trippier, after this match, he stays behind on the pitch. He's the only one on the pitch, and he applauds all four sides of the uh, Wanda Metropolitano. Uh, 
thanking the fans. He's obviously been a very important player for them over the last three seasons. Atleti are going to find it difficult to replace him. I think that they have to move quickly to, to find a new right back in that system because he's been so important to them. But obviously there is a lot of speculation at the moment that Trippier is going back to the Premier League. Surprisingly, in, in my eyes anyway, Newcastle yep. seems to be who are leading the, the chase. So my United were linked in the summer. I think I even saw Arsenal were linked in the summer. Tottenham, they've been talking about a new right wing back, but none of those teams really seem to be pressing the issue in January this month with Trippier, and it's Newcastle who he seems to be on his way to. So, And Simeone said after the match as well, you know, um, Atleti not being able to... They don't, they don't want to keep a player who doesn't want to be at the club, which I, I just think is, is pretty telling and pretty much confirmation that he is on his way out of Atletico Madrid. But yeah, replacing him is going to be quite difficult, and... I think we said on the on the Bleacher Report um, uh, show we did that maybe Atleti wouldn't do that much in January. I think that is maybe the one move that they will look to do is find a new right wing back. Um, I too was surprised by that link to Newcastle. I saw some reporting that he Trippier had previously worked with Eddie Howe when uh, Eddie Howe was at Burnley for a year. Uh, I'm not quite sure how much overlap there was, but I guess some level of relationship there that maybe is a factor in that one, or maybe it's just you know Saudi oil money that could also be a slightly large factor yeah, as money. well. Maybe, maybe what? <laughs> Who knows? Who knows for sure? One of the two. Uh, but there are other players that are on the move, uh, not even just speculatively, but actually on the move. Joe Lowry, we've got two Americans. I think you've. You're two for three in your predictions, or you already had one on the move? So have you gotten your uh, your prediction for the year? Yeah, so my very specific prediction on that Bleacher Report live show that we did on Thursday. Thanks to everybody who, who watched that. We had a ton of fun doing it. The four of us, myself, Graham, Ryan, Taylor, the whole crew was involved, and it was a really great time on Thursday. Talking so trans- giraffe. <laughs> yeah, and so did Taylor's. Uh, Taylor. Well, I guess it's Revy's giraffe. Taylor kind yes. claim to yes. it for a while. So if, if, you, if you didn't watch the show, everyone's super confused right now, and I'm honestly okay here, with Joe. that. She's still yeah. here. Okay, there, there's the giraffe. Wait, what's the giraffe's name again, Taylor? Sophie. Sophie. There's Sophie. So it was really the five of us with Sophie. Anyway, long <laughs> preamble aside, on that show, I made a very specific prediction that we would see three USMNT players move in January. Technically, that's already happened because you had Kyle Duncan moving already. There's some other pre-contract players that, that I had forgotten about. Caden Clark technically moved to RB Leipzig. And apparently, if reports are to be believed, he's actually going to be loaned back to the New York Red Bull. So that's a bit of a, of a tough situation for him. I'm sure disappointing there. Chris Mueller is going to Hibs in Scotland. Setting those aside, though, the two biggest names that have moved... Ricardo Pepe going to Augsburg for $20 million. It's a huge fee for FC Dallas. And the other one is Daryl DK going to West Brom in the championship. Orlando will receive a $9.5 million fee, according to ESPN's Jeff Carlisle. These are massive deals. Now that they're both official, they're both in the top five uh, in terms of outgoing transfer fees generated in Major League Soccer history. The league is certainly skewing more and more towards selling players on and getting bigger and bigger fees for those players. Positive signs for Major League Soccer, certainly. I do have some questions about both of these moves on an individual level. We'll talk more about that tomorrow on on our American-centric show. But still, congratulations to both of those players moving to the next step in their career on a permanent basis. This is huge for both of those guys, and, and I'm hopeful for both of them that it will turn out to be a good thing. Uh, we will indeed talk about those moves uh, in more depth tomorrow. We'll also probably mention Caden Clark again. I saw uh, Manuel Vaith uh, tweeting about that move back to uh, New York and basically framing it more as a positive, which made me happy that essentially with the uncertainty 
at Leipzig right now, managerial turnover, not quite sure how like stable they're going to be for the rest of the season. I think they couldn't guarantee him the minutes, the opportunities that they would have liked. So instead, they're sending him back to get consistent minutes at club level. And that works for me. But I'm very excited for Daryl DK. I am confused and kind of concerned about Ricardo Pepe. But I think Augsburg uh, coming in and splashing that amount of cash shows their intent to get him minutes, to get him opportunities. So that makes me very happy. It also makes me very happy that Graham has happy news from Scotland. Is this Nathan Patterson? Are we talking about? <laughs> oh, I was talking about Sterling Albion. Oh, right. I thought we were maybe talking along transfer lines. So I'll mention that one quickly. Nathan Patterson, who is the first team uh, right back for Scotland, appears to be on his way to Everton, which is a good move because very strangely for someone who's going for £60 million to the Premier League to be a first team player at Everton, he hasn't played much at Rangers this season because James Tavenier is the first choice uh, right back for Rangers. So I'm excited just to see more of him. And I think it's exciting that we might have a bit of balance to our defence, given that we are a team of left backs otherwise. So maybe we'll now have a right back to to balance things up. Sterling Albion, uh, we're now calling this section Host's Corner, which is an excuse basically for Ryan and I to talk about the clubs that uh, no one else cares about. Um, so Sterling Albion, yeah, we won a match finally. Uh, our first one in, in, in six. I was getting a bit concerned about the way our season was going. Um, so it was a huge win over our local rival, Stennis Muir. Uh, we've got a new manager as well, Darren Young. So the table would have looked pretty ugly had we not got that win. So that was a bit of a relief. And the other thing I'm going to mention um, I've been meaning to mention this for a few weeks in the section that is the, the host's concern segment. But in Scotland, there's a bit of an interesting storyline developing with our broth. So our broth are the only part team, part time team in the otherwise full time Scottish Championship, which is the second tier in Scotland. And they are currently top of the table. And they're looking good to win that title. They had a big top-of-the-table clash against Inverness at the weekend. I streamed it online, which is the first time I've ever streamed an Arbroath match uh, online. And oh, it wasn't really? the best of matches. I do that like every it other was... week. <laughs> Same, Taylor and I actually get together to watch those games. So, yeah. Graham, we'll invite you now, I guess. It's kind of <laughs> it was on now. ESPN, I believe. Uh, on the big channel, national oh, yeah. network. <laughs> Actually, weirdly, all three networks coordinated to all show the same game. Sort of like when you get a presidential address. It was sure. a big one over here. It was a big one, Graham. Yeah. No, I, I heard that. Uh, to be honest, I'm not even sure it was that big in Scotland. It was, it was big in the Scottish football world. Um, so yeah, it wasn't the best of game, nil-nil. But the fact that they're still up there and the fact that a part-time team might get promoted to the top division, which would be pure chaos, and you would have a lot of people saying that makes Scottish football look bad. But I am all on board for the chaos. So uh, I'm a bit of a part-time Arbroath fan this season. I would like to see them get prom- promoted. Graham, genuine question. Like, it, So if they were promoted, now they're in the top flight, does that 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 bump from second tier to to the 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 Premiership? Do you think that would be enough for them to not have to be part time, or do you think there would still be like players playing at that professional level who are then also still doing side jobs? So this has this is such an an unknown that I I don't really know, and I've asked I've asked other like Scottish football fans what would happen what happens if our both get promoted to the top division because it's never even come close to happening you know the, the part-time teams in the championship there's normally one or two every season there's two part two part-time teams they normally go straight back down they're normally sinking stones Sterling Albion have been that team we've been a part-time team in the championship and we finished bottom with about 10 points over the whole season so I don't know the, the going from part-time to full-time in Scottish football is, is quite an undertaking and I would expect it would take more than a, a summer 
to pull that off. So it might be the case that they have they they employ some full time players if they go into the top flight. But I would be surprised if they were able to get that whole squad because all these guys have jobs. You know, they all have jobs to get out of. It's very difficult for them to to get out of any contracts they have with uh, you know if they're tradesmen or whatever policemen. You know, the usual candlestick maker, all that sort of thing that gets <laughs> rolled out when you're talking about FA Cup matches against part time teams. So yeah, I don't know. Is 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 the truth of the matter? And the other thing is the stadium they play at is this sort of ramshackle uh, stadium with very few seats it barely has a stand it has about 500 seats it's right on the north sea when you kick a ball over the one of the stands it goes in the sea which is unusual for a top flight uh, team to have that sort of stadium so yeah that's that's why it would be completely chaotic and i want to see it happen this feels like if they were to gonna go back and reboot ted lasso this feels like a a sort of narrative story for a season is the, the semi-pro team making it to the top flight under the man- management of Ted Lasso. And then you do have the part-timers helping out. Like I'm, there's always a plumber in there. And I like the idea of the plumber then fixing things around the stadium to get them ready yeah. for the premiership season. There's usually some sort of a lift driver or a taxi driver. So maybe you could have like that person being the team chauffeur. It could all work out. They could find a way to make it yeah. work, I think is what I'm saying. Yeah, an, el- an electrician, and then the floodlights go off, of and the electrician has to go off and 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 yeah. fix the the floodlights. Yeah, <laughs> it's all the cliches. All right. Well, when that happens, we're going to sue them for uh, a producer's credit. But until it does, I think we've talked about plenty from this past weekend. Joe Lowry, anything else to add uh, from you? Who I'm assuming will then be uh, taking a nap and getting caught up on some sleep. Yes to the nap, no to anything else to add, Taylor. (laughs) Well, thank you very much for your efforts, and thank you for being here. Good to talk to you, Arizona Joe. Oh, thanks, Taylor. Right back at you. (laughs) And Scottish Graham, always good to talk to you as well, my friend. (laughs) Thank you, Taylor Rockwell. Listeners, thank you all so much for listening. We'll talk to you all again very soon. 